That's some sensational catch. Absolutely brilliant from Hooper. Was hit back firmly by Maiello. Hammered down the ground. It could fly all the way for a maximum. It's gonna soar into the sky. That's the six they needed. That's 50 for Forbrush. What a knock that is from him. Outstanding striking. And that six brings Guernsey back into the game. Could be a catch. What a catch. One-handed grab. And that's Josh Butler, the captain. Oh my days, we have been treated to some catches in this tournament. Welcome to Under the Covers, Guernsey Cricket's very own podcast. I'm Ben Furbrush, Guernsey Cricket Development Manager, and on this podcast we will be chatting to players old and new, coaches, administrators and other cricketing keen beans along the way. On today's episode we catch up with ex-West Indian assistant coach and current Bangladesh high performance coach Toby Radford. Welcome to the Guernsey Cricket Podcast, Toby Radford, thanks very much for coming on. Pleasure, nice to speak to you. So... If we go right the way back to the start, you were born 3rd of December in 1971. And if I say this right, is it Caerphilly in Wales? That's it. Caerphilly, just outside of Cardiff. Uh, my dad was a journalist with a Welsh newspaper um, and he was a cricket lover. And from a very, very early age, was sort of throwing balls at me, you know, at the age of four or five, I think, when I was living in Caerphilly. Yeah. Right. So, they, yeah, that was going to sort of lead me on to my next question. So were you born into a massive sporting family or was it solely just into cricket? Uh, my dad had played club cricket, but really enjoyed the game and had a passion for it. And the story goes, and I don't know how true this is, but this is what he still says to me, is that I was pl- apparently playing in the back garden at the house in Caerphilly all those years ago. And as, a, as a, you know, probably at the age of four or five, somebody, a friend of mine rang the doorbell and to walk to the doorbell, I had to pass the TV and England were playing on the television. And apparently I never made it to the front door to my friend. I saw the cricket on, sat there and watched. He ended up going home. And from then on in, I just, you know, apparently loved the game and, and, you know, had this very close relationship with my dad. I mean, my dad was my coach for many years um, and that's where my love of the game came from. And that's where, uh, you know, he would be throwing balls at me day in, day out in car parks and disused tennis courts and going on holiday, we'd take a cricket bat. So, you know, it was that close relationship with my dad, I think, really got me into the game, you know. And then with regards to sort of school as well, did you play at primary school and secondary school or was it not such a big thing? I did, no, I played a little bit at school, but to be honest, it was mainly through my dad. It would be after school, we would be in a tennis court, he'd be throwing tennis balls, um, tape balls where we'd put insulating tape on a ball. We'd go into, there was a disused school near me when we moved to Newbury in Berkshire um, and he used to throw off about 12 yards to, to create a bit more pace and the ball would swing uh, and then everything always felt a bit easier off 22 when you've been playing off 12 yards in practice. So, you know, we, we always joke that my dad has his right arm slightly longer than his left because he's thrown so many balls at me over the years. But that was how I grew up. And, and even when I was playing pro cricket, I would still be practicing with him. I mean, well into his 70s, he was still throwing a lot of balls. You know, can't do it nowadays, bless him. But uh, but we, we had a lot of fun and it was it, it was really my introduction to the game. And my I think my uh, practice was outside of outside of school cricket I'd play a little bit of school cricket but it was really the extra bits really that made the difference I think yeah and then alongside that you got involved obviously with England so you played six youth tests for England um had quite a good four as a promising junior uh you made 79 versus New Zealand in one of those um youth tests you also played for the Middlesex second 11 at the age of 16 um sort of two questions here is did you feel there was added pressure having sort of progressed so quickly through all of that cricket and did you sort of see, you know, at this time in your career, how was that feeling as a 16-year-old lad? 
Yeah, it's, um, I mean, I signed, uh, I signed at Middlesex on a summer contract at the age of 16, which was great because I, when I'd be earning some money from playing cricket in, in the summer, and I could use it in the winter. And I went off to university, did a journalism degree, and my money from Middlesex in the summer would help me pay for that. Um, I think I had, a lot of, I had quite a lot of success as a young player. I won the Lord's Taverners Player of the Year, I think a record, 13, at the age of 13, 15 and 17. Um, and I played young England. And I think there was always this, oh, you know, Tobe's going to go on and he's going to play for England. And maybe pressure I put on myself, I think. Um, so I always felt that I played with that kind of, that, that little bit of pressure and, and probably never really, now I look back on my playing career, never really fulfilled maybe the potential that I had. Um, I mean, in terms of Middlesex, like, I think I broke the record there, hit 26 second team hundreds. But I was almost, I was almost became a second team player. And then when I played in the first team, although I got scores in the first team, it was almost, you know, even if you got a score, uh, a senior player may be coming back from injury and then you lose your place. I never felt I was playing relaxed as a first team player at Middlesex. So um, I think when I look back on it now, I think that was probably, you know, I, I think if I had my time again, play in a, in a probably a slightly more relaxed frame of mind and, and put less pressure on myself, you know. Yeah, and, then, and you were involved with the Middlesex age groups as well, or was it just straight into the second team then? Or how did the sort of system and structure look then? No, well, I played, um, even when I was living in Newbury, I was playing for Berkshire under-11s and under-13s, and I was also qualifying for Middlesex because I played for Bronsbury, a club in Middlesex. Right. So I was playing for Middlesex under-13s clubs, and I was playing for Berkshire schools. So I was almost playing for two teams at the same time. And then it became a natural sort of progression then that I would move into the Middlesex setup. And when they could sign me at 16, they signed me. Uh, and as I say, I carried on my education, but really I was... You know, I always believed that I, yeah, I wanted to go and play pro cricket and try and, you know, maximise my potential there. Yeah, and then following Middlesex, uh, after averaging 31 with 250s, you made a switch to Sussex. Um, how and why did this move come about to Sussex? Well, I, I, think, I think really for some of the issues I was mentioning before, I think at Middlesex I was scoring all these runs in the second team. I just couldn't get a look in. Very strong first team. Uh, you know, Desmond Haynes, Gatting, Ramper Cash, Carr. I mean, it was almost an, it was an international setup. It was a heck. It was when Middlesex were at their strongest. And, you know, I, I felt I don't want to be at Manchester United sitting on the bench. I'd rather go and play somewhere. But the problem was, I think by the time I then made that move, I think mentally and my game was probably on the way down. If I, if I, if I was going to go to another club, I probably should have gone three or four years earlier. I may have had another five or six years as a pro and had a far better playing career. But I think I was, I, I was a bit riddled by self-doubt then because I'd spent too long in the second team. Um, so I don't think Sussex got the best of me as much as I absolutely loved it. I loved living down on the South Coast. Nice club, nice people, just... I just couldn't perform the way I wanted to perform. And then I did two years there. I could see that probably my game was, wasn't where it had been. Uh, and actually, the day that I finished, although it should have been an awful day, it was kind of a bit of a, bit of, of a relief. And there was a bit of a weight off my shoulders, uh, which was an odd thing to say when you spent half your life you know, working for it, um, that, that the day you lose your contract down there, actually, it felt like a huge weight. So there clearly I was playing under pressure that had gone. And then it was a case of what do you do next? Um, I had a degree in journalism. Cricket had been my life. You know, do I go down a writing route or do I go down a coaching route? And uh, one job was up at that time. And it was the Berkshire Cricket Development Officer's job. It was based in Newbury where my mum and dad lived. And I ended up I ended up taking, getting that job and I could I could almost 
you know, get out of bed at five to nine and be in the office at nine o'clock. So I was really lucky that the one coaching type job was, was you know, in my hometown back in Newbury. Uh, and that was it, really. And that was the start of a, of a coaching career in many ways. Did you do all your coaching badges alongside that or before that? I'd, I'd done them before. I did them when I was at Middlesex. So a lot of players in the winters, um, you know, county cricket would go away and play abroad. And I stayed home and I either did my studying or before I went away to university, I would use some of those winters. Um, I would use some of those winters to do coaching. So I used to go in the schools around North London. Uh, and even in my time when I was down at Sussex, I did I did some coaching in the schools there and the clubs there. And I think it gives you a really good you know, a good foundation um, for your coaching, I think, to go in at that base level and, you know, deal with big numbers and just get some enjoyment and safety and all of those kind of basic things uh, before you sort of move on up the levels, you know. I guess as well, it will probably help you gain sort of uh, traction and gain knowledge on sort of the culture in those areas as well, because every area is different from one another. Yeah, I, do you know what? It was really interesting. I mean, I went into a really difficult part of of London, some really poorish areas. And I thought, God, what's this experience going to be like? But what I found was the kids were so grateful. They were absolutely brilliant. It was some of the places where you'd be worried that when you went to get your car at the end, it might be up on bricks and it'd have no <laughs> wheels left. But, but, you know, the kids were so grateful, so appreciative. And actually, they were the best sessions. I went into some really posh parts of Sussex. And, you know, you turn around, the kids are up on the wall bars. It didn't matter what you did for them. They, you know, nothing was going to keep them happy. Uh, so it was, it was very interesting for me just going, you know, going into different areas. And, and sometimes the poorer, poorer ones were the better ones to work with, actually. Yeah. And then following that role, uh, you got involved with the Middlesex Academy, was it? I did. I set up, I, I became a national coach with the ECB. So I took a job with Berkshire's development officer. And while I was there, I did some work. Um, I, I linked in with Vodafone, actually, and we set up an academy there in, in Berkshire and did that for a couple of years. And then then I became a national coach with the ECB. And the national coach in those days was someone who would work with some of the young England sides and coach coaches in the winter, which which I really enjoyed doing. So it would kind of give you a bit of a, you know, a bit of a mix, really. Players on the one hand, coaches on the other hand. That was great. Did that for a couple of years. And then a lot of the counties started setting up academies. And having obviously been at Middlesex for a number of years, I, I heard that they were setting one up. And I, I said to John Embry at the time, look, if you're looking for someone, you know, I'd be keen to come in and do that. And um, so I started that up. I set that up very first year. And we had the likes of Steve Finn was on it, Billy Godelman. Uh, I took Chris Wright from Hampshire, brought him up. I'd seen him play, got him involved. So we had quite a good, you know, we had quite a strong group, really, in that first year or two. And then obviously the likes of Owen Morgan came over from Ireland, David Milan um, came in. So, you know, we had some real good young players to work with, which was fantastic. And, you know, I look back on those days really fondly. You know. And was there much of a link between the academy and sort of like second team and first team then? Or was it very much two separate things? I, I think initially it was very separate um, in a funny way that I think people, players in the in the main team could see that we were doing stuff probably in a slightly more professional way than it was then even in the first team. And actually some of the players saying, look, can we get access to this? And it became it became more of a natural progression then that, um, you know, in terms of my own job, I wasn't just then dealing with with academy. I was then dealing with the second team and there was more of a flow. And, and, and I always liked the idea that academy players would feel part of the club. So 
what we used to do. If there was a Sunday league match at Lord's, say, for example, I'd make sure all the academy guys came in in the morning. I'd get a young Finney bowling to Straussy in the net. You know, they bowl at the big players. Fantastic for the young players. The senior guys know who they are. And my feeling was always saying to these players, look, it's important when you do play, and hopefully you're going to play in the first team at some point, that these guys, you know, know who you are and you feel you feel a part of it. I don't want you going in there and feeling anxious and, you know, who's who. You want them to know you so and feel, and feel that they rate you. So the practicing together was important for me. And we used to do as much of that as we as we could, you know. And then it must have been a natural progression to take the, the head coach role. Um, you temporarily filled it in 2007. And then you took it on full time in 2008, was it? Yeah, I took it on. Um, I'd been working alongside Richard Pybus, who was excellent, really, as a head coach. But uh, he decided he went back halfway through one of the seasons. I then carried on. We got promotion, I think, in, it was in the 40-over competition. I then signed at the end of the year full time. And then the following year, in 2008, we won the the domestic um, the T20 competition. We won off the last ball against Kent down in uh, in the Rose Bowl, which was probably the, my, you know, my finest day in cricket, really, because it was just blue sky all day. Never saw a cloud. We went off the last ball and I'll never forget it. It was just absolutely amazing. And true story, Harry Potter, um, the actor, um, I'm trying to think his first name now, Ratcliffe. Uh, he was, he was there. I think he was linked with Durham university and he was supporting Durham and he ended up, in our dressing room when we won that night, up on a big drink sesky, <laughs> gave our speech to the play. It was brilliant. It was quite a surreal night. It was really fantastic day, fantastic night, and we had a very good side. I mean, you know, we had uh, we had a side stacked with good left-handers and a very varied sort of bowling attack. Dirk Nanez, left arm quick. Yeah. Um, you know, Tim Murta, Finney. It was a really good. Uh, it was a good team, and uh, we'd had a good tournament. Uh, Murray Kartik, Sean, uh, Sean Udall, who played really well, um, you know, two fine spinners. So it was just a well-balanced side, had a great tournament and a fantastic day. So I uh, look back on that really fondly, you know. And did you find sort of like the coaching of uh, white ball to red ball massively different or is it all sort of interlinked? Um, no, I mean, it is different. Clearly, you know, your game plans, your structures, the type of players you're working with, they are different. But I, I actually enjoy that. I think, you know, you... I like variety. Like I said before, I enjoy working with coaches. I, I don't want to work with coaches all the time. I then like working with players. I don't want to work with players all the time. So I quite like variety. So even on a tour, you know, when I've been working in recent years with the Windies, we would be working there on a test series and you're working with Brathwaite or you're working with Hope or whatever. And then, you know, they'll go in and in comes Pollard or in comes Samuels very different type of people you've got to know them how are you going to work with them how do they like practicing you know some of those will hit lots of balls others don't want to hit the ball so and I like that I quite like that because it's a test for me as a coach and I, I think that's important that you as a coach you need to be slightly flexible in your style and your approach and get the best out of whoever you've got in front of you you know yeah you sort of touching it there it's sort of understanding each player individually how do you sort of gain that rapport is it just getting to know them through going out for a coffee with them and yeah, well, I think just getting to know them in and around and they've got to get to know you. I mean, Marlon Samuels, for a long, long time, I worked with the West Indies. Marlon Samuels was always arms folded, looking at me like, you know, what can this little white man do to, to help me and help my game? You know, does he know anything about cricket? And he was quite tough, Marlon, for a long period. Um, difficult. And, and I didn't have that with any of the guys out there. I mean, always excellent to work with the West Indians. And then one day, well, uh, well over a year into working with the West Indies, we were playing a series. I was against New Zealand out in St. Kitts and I sat down for breakfast and, and Marlon came and sat with me with his, with his bowl of fruit. 
and, and he spent a whole hour and he just started chatting to me and he opened up and he started telling me about his background and how he got into the game and who had coached him. And it was almost like he'd been testing me for a year and suddenly I passed the test and he was quite happy now to open up. And, and after that, I worked with him, you know, a lot and we got on very, very well. Um, so, you know, that, that was interesting for me that he'd really been tested. And I think he'd seen the work I'd done with all the others and how the others bought into it. And he probably thought, yeah, not a bad bloke after all. <laughs> Perhaps the little white man does know something, you know. I don't know. Uh, it was good. You say about the West Indies there. Um, you left Middlesex 2009. Um, they had a sort of a restructuring of the club. Was that quite a difficult decision or was it sort of easy to make? Left where now? Middlesex, Middlesex you say? Yes, yeah. No, I mean, look, it was politics, really. I mean, it's, um, you know, as can happen with these clubs, they decide. It was disappointing for me because, you know, we just won a trophy. It was the first trophy at Middlesex for many, many years. Um, you know, couldn't have done more than we'd done. And then suddenly within the next year, I think Angus Fraser came in as director of cricket. Richard Scott, who was my assistant, then became head coach. But I only found out subsequently that he's very closely linked with Sean Udall, who was captain. So it kind of, when you look at it, you kind of feel you are pincered. <laughs> and and it, it's, it's a bit like a Penelope pit stop on the tracks. You can see what's happening and there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. You know, when, it, when your number's up and you're being sort of, they're coming at you from all sides. There was clearly an agenda and I wasn't part of it. And you look, you move on. I mean, it's, it's professional sport and it happens in football teams, rugby teams, cricket teams. But I've been on the end of it once or twice. And it's, it's the tough downside of coaching because, you know, you don't mind losing your job if you're losing matches or players aren't performing. But it's, it's tough when you lose your job and you're actually winning and you're winning trophies and then, and then you still lose your job. But that's sport, I suppose. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And then 2010, you moved to the Caribbean to take up a post of high performance uh, coach in the high performance centre there. Uh, yeah. What exactly was that role and who were you working with in that role? Well, the job was basically to run, to go and set up and then run um, what, what was going to be the West Indies Academy, the West Indies High Performance Centre. And the idea was they would pick the best 12 or 14 young players in the West Indies who would be aged between 19 and 23. So a bit like an A team. Um, my job would be to put a programme together, manage a staff and then and then basically coach the players, you know, in a camp and then take them on tours and develop them. And uh it, it's, it was a fantastic experience. I mean, it was the best thing ever, really. Living in Barbados, I don't know if you've been, but it's, you know, there's no, there are not many better places than Barbados. Um, the lads were great. I mean, a young Jason Holder, Shannon Gabriel, Dowrich. A lot of the guys have gone on and been in the test team in the last few years. You know, we're in that first cohort. Um, so for me, it was getting to know them, setting the agenda, putting the programme and absolutely loved it. Um, and it was great, you know, it was absolutely brilliant. And then I've been lucky, really, even when I finished that role and then became batting coach and assistant coach, I've been able to sort of see through, you know, large chunks of Jason Holder's career. It's class Jason is a very good mate of mine still, even though I'm not there now, um, you know, and seeing these boys develop and become, you know, fully fledged sort of international players, which has been great. Yeah, yeah and then you, you sort of touched on it there. How easy or how hard is it to coach those sorts of players who have got, obviously, the West Indies have loads of natural flair. They always want to play their shots, be quite free. How, how did mm. you find that? Was it massively different to the UK? Not really. I mean, what I found what I found when I first went there was lots of ability, lots of flair, natural athletes, as, as you say, everything you say there, there's no doubt about that. What they probably were lacking a little bit was structure and a little bit of um, either technical knowledge of their own strengths and weaknesses and areas to work on. 
um, and a bit of tactical nous, really, you know, game management and really understanding the game. So you had all this flair and ability. And I felt that what you could do, you don't want to take any of that away. You just want to manage it a little bit. You know, if you've got lovely shot players there, the last thing you want to do is take those away. You've got to work with it, make them understand, you know, the shots that work for them. When do you play them? When do you maybe not play them? You know, how are we going to turn your 30s into hundreds? Well, you, you know, you've got to be a little bit more selective without suddenly, you know, turning them into Tavare. So just just sort of polishing them a little bit, I think. Um, but they were always good to work with. And this idea that, you know, West Indians don't want to put the work in. I mean, I found those lads really trained, you know, and even now Jason will say he's never been fitter than that period and the work he put in there. I mean, he, you know, he holds that dear, I think, to his development. Yeah. And whilst you were there in 2012, you obviously won the uh, T20 World Cup. How was that? That must have been a fantastic experience. Yeah, that was brilliant. I mean, you know, for me, it was a natural progression, really. Otis Gibson was head coach and I'd been, I'd been working with the academy for a couple of years. And he said, look, a lot of your players, especially the batters, are now coming into the into the international team. You know, would you like to come and be my assist, assistant, work with the batters? So it was a natural progression. And then, yeah, we went to we went to Sri Lanka and then one in Colombo, beat Sri Lanka in the final. I think we were 20-odd for four. Marlon Samuels walked out, got us back into the game. And then he got after Malinga at the end, posted a... You know, a lowish score, but on the wicket, it was a difficult wicket. I, mean, I think it was 130 something. And we won quite easily in the end. You know, Ravi Rampal got a couple of wickets up front. And oh, brilliant. You know, I remember going back to my room in the hotel and there was a cake there from the ICC. Well done on winning the work. It was really, you know, things like that that you always remember. I had the party afterwards with, with the players and some supporters who travelled out there. Um, great, great days. And um, Honestly, I look back, I probably had 10 years with the West Indies and I look back on it really fondly. Terrific guys, really good, play with good spirit, nice people on and off the field, you know. Yeah, and then with that, you also uh, became head coach of Glamorgan. Was that alongside yeah. the West Indies or was that a completely separate time? No it, no, it was in the middle of it, to be honest. I did a few years with the West Indies. The job came up at Glamorgan and for me, I, I was quite attracted to it because it was my home county. It was my dad's county. It was where I was born, you know, going full circle there, really, you know, it, based in Cardiff, just just up the road from Caerphilly there. So it felt like a, a job I really liked because, I, you know, I'm patriotically well, especially when the rugby's on. Uh, and even though I don't sound it, I, I am Welsh and, my, my, you know, my whole family is Welsh. So for me, it was kind of, it is a job I'm going to really enjoy. And I, I went down there, um, took it on. It was, I mean, looking back on it now, right, it, I think it was a tough job to take on. I don't think it was the easiest dressing room. It was a team that had had, it was really struggling. It was very low down. In some ways, you could say, well, it was so low down, you can only go one way. Yeah. And, and, actually, and actually, in quite a short period of time, I got some of the young players really performing, David Lloyd and Iron Donald. Uh, we had, I think we won four or five champion, championship matches in a row. And we were really flying. Um, and again, you know, you kind of, you know, a bit of the sort of the county politics kicked in and I ended up doing two years. They put Robert Croft in there, who was my assistant. So he ended up going in there. He did a couple of years. And, you know, it's, it, it, it's a shame, really. I sort of look at Glamorgan and I think, oh, you know, for a, a team that's basically a national team, you, you, they should be much higher up and performing better than they do. Um, but they seem to be a little bit stuck, sort of lower down and, you know, perennially, you know. You're listening to Under the Covers, Guernsey's very own cricket podcast. We'll be back after the short break. Bowled him! Beautiful bit of bowling from William Peatfield. The stump comes crashing out the ground, and that's a big wicket here in Guernsey versus Denmark at the KG5. That's the first wicket. Letizia is the one who strikes. He gives it a big celebration. He writes it up in the book. He notes it down and sends them off. 
You can add Manpreet Singh to that list. That's the breakthrough Letizia needed. That's the breakthrough Guernsey needed. And that's the breakthrough that Mark Ladder to my left wants. A big smile on his face. And a wonderful shot there. Cover drive for four. Stokes already finding the boundary twice in this game. Following Glamorgan, uh, you obviously, like you said, went almost back to the West Indies uh, as batting and assistant coach. Uh, again, having great success. So you defeated England for the first time in the Caribbean in 20 years. Uh, you won a test match in England as well against against England. Yeah. Obviously. Um, that must be great to sort of have that success. Yeah, it was great. I mean, I went back there. Uh, I've just done the last sort of four or five years with them, to be honest. And it was brilliant. I mean, I first went back and we played Pakistan. I think my first assignment was... Pakistan in Dubai, which was a really good series, and they're tough, tough to beat Pakistan out, out, you know, on their type of pitches. Uh, we won a Test match there in Sharjah, which was brilliant. Uh, I was so pleased. Craig Bradford, I think, batted pretty much the whole game, um, and then yet yeah, we had the win in 2017 where Shea Hope got the couple of hundreds. We won up at Headingley, uh, but unfortunately we lost the series at Lords. Um, but that was a that was a good series for us, I think. Uh, and then yeah, we beat uh, we beat England back in 2019 in the Caribbean. That was that was great. It was great for the likes of Jason who got a you know ended up getting a double hundred at home. Dowridge got a hundred. I mean that was fantastic scenes you know on their home ground in Barbados and uh, and winning and then winning the series in Antigua. So they were you know very good um, you know highlights I think to be honest. Yeah, and like you said, that must have been really rewarding for yourself with someone like Jason Holder who you'd almost had from the start all the way through yeah. to a Test double hundred. Yeah, because you you know them as lads, right? And you like them as people on and off the pitch. You've got a really good rapport with them. Forget them as cricketers. You know, Jason Holder, you won't meet a nicer bloke, honestly. He's the nicest guy on or off the pitch. Terrific. So you, you're just pleased for them as, as human beings, as well as cricketers. And you know how hard they've worked. You've seen them doing all the gym sessions. You've yeah. been on the bowling machine, bucket after bucket after bucket, when they're sweating, you know, buckets. Uh, so you've seen all the hard work. So when they do actually get those days, it's it's you know you enjoy it as much as they do. Really, it's fantastic. And uh, and they, and 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 obviously doing it in Barbados, their parents were there, family were there, friends were there. So it couldn't have been better for them. I mean, it was absolutely fantastic. You know. And then most recently, you've taken up a role as high performance coach at Bangladesh. So far, yeah. how have you done that role? I've really enjoyed it. I went out, I did a stint just before Christmas. I'm due out again soon. Um, and I, I really enjoyed it. The, the, the young Bangladesh um, players, very talented. I mean, the, the under-19 side is the current, you know, current world champions. So they've got a very strong group. Uh, my role is similar to when I set up the West Indies High Performance Centre. It's to take those lads aged between 19 and 23. So, so I've got about 24 players and the whole of that under 19 world cup winning side is in that group plus a few older ones and it's i mean some very good batters some excellent spinners um but pace bowlers you know we've got one or two but it's it's not their main forte but batters and spinners excellent um so i've been really impressed with them actually and and an attitude work rate and just very humble people um very very down to earth nice people um so uh, yeah it's been great so far i've enjoyed it and uh, look forward to going back soon and then if we sort of delve a bit deeper into sort of like your coaching style and the, and coaching in general, um, in terms of the style of coaching, you come across as quite a relaxed, sort of um, really easy to talk to coach. Is that the best way to describe you? Well, I think you need to be approachable. I, I think you need to be approachable and I think you need to be consistent with players. I, I think the most important thing is being consistent. I think what you can't be is up and down 
where players feel on edge or they don't know how you're going to, they've got to, they've got to know you and, and feel that they, that you are, you know, if they've got an issue, they can come and talk or can you help me with this? I think that's really important. So you need to be fairly balanced. I think with players win or lose, you've got to try to be the same. Not always easy because sometimes you're under pressure as a coach and you, you might be you know, chewing up inside and you've got to try <laughs> not to show it. And we've all been there on days like that. Um, so, but I think tr- being approachable, being consistent, being fair, I think knowing when the time is there to to be tough with them and, you know, as you would as a parent with your child, you know, there are times where you've got to be tough. Um, if people aren't putting in the right attitude or the right amount of work, you sometimes you've got to have those honest conversations. But as long as you're consistent and fair and you're doing it across the board, I think players respect that. I think your problems come as a coach. If, if you know, if you're doing one thing on a Monday and you're changing on a Wednesday, then they don't know where they stand and then it becomes difficult. And then often you can become the excuse then for poor performances. My other thing really with players is to try to get them to become in many ways their own coach. So give them understanding don't just tell them what to do, but really get them to understand why. Why does something work? Why does something not? So that when I'm not there, they can almost coach themselves and they start to become. And I think a lot of the best players are their own coaches in many ways. You know, they've, true, and that's what experience is, isn't it? You start to learn what works for you. Um, so, so I like to do that. And I, and I think as a batting coach, my thing is always to try to get to root cause. You know, you might see several things going on with the player. Is there one key thing where if I can get that, I think all the other things are going to sort of look after themselves. You know, this I've probably talked about it before, this domino effect of if you sort this out, all the other things sort of look after themselves. And then with that, you've got quite a strong um, stance on uh, head, hands and feet and position on, yeah. on ball release. Could you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I like, I mean, certainly in world cricket now, you're finding a lot of the top players uh, at ball release are generally in and around middle and off, off stump. So they're already in the business area. So there is, they, they don't need to move too much across the wicket. They can just go up and down, which makes things a lot simpler. Um, in terms of head, hands and feet, I think if you're balanced and you're ready to move, I think that's crucial at ball release. And your body alignment, everything is going back towards the bowler's stump. So you're very much you know, aligned back down the wicket, not across the wicket. And that'll help you move quickly up and down. I like to see with players a little bit of give in the legs to allow them to push off. And ideally, if you drew a line from the head, it would go down through the hands and the bat and down through the feet. So everything's kept in quite tight. So you can work up and down in lovely straight lines, um, you know, which clearly if the ball's moving or it's at pace, you know, the simpler it is, the, you know, the easier it is for you to play. Yeah, and then also on my level three, we did some drills where, fortunately, uh, I was the the guinea pig, if you like, the batter, um, which which you put me through my paces on. Um, could you sort of describe those the best way you can on the podcast? I think we had sort of four drills set up uh, across sort of four lanes. Yeah, but um, the back foot one we did with you. Yes, back yes, foot. yeah, yeah. So I think the back foot one initially was um, was to get you into a almost a finishing position on the back foot, so you, your head weight would still be forward, back foot back and across hands and, and toe of the bat up all, all right, all, already. And I think that's the key on the back foot is that you've got the toe of the bat up so you can come on top of the bounce of the ball so you can control it. Um, so from that ready position, a fast sort of underarm feed, you know, sort of about waist height and then and then just coming down. If it's slightly higher than waist height, just defending it. And if it's on waist height, just extending the hands and the arms through the ball to, to turn it into a back foot punch. So uh, it's a nice, simple drill. You know, you can do it. You can even do it slightly rapid fire. 
and then having got in knowing that position you want to get into once you've got that you can then go back to your normal stance and then move into that finishing position so you're well balanced you know when you're hitting the ball um so i i, I found that I found that works quite well really yeah and then we've just gone back into lockdown in guernsey uh we're sort of two weeks into it now uh, is there any simple drills or skills you can do at home you know just with your, your bat and the ball yeah, I mean, there's lots of, I mean, God, going back 20 years, I mean, well, probably more than that, 30 years, you know, but throwing tennis balls against the wall and playing off the wall, uh, ball on a piece of string, hitting the ball back and forward. I used to have a ball in the garage, actually, and I used to infuriate my mum in the room above the garage door where, you know, I'd be banging the ceiling with the tennis ball, but just bringing the bat down straight and just just repetition of a good straight back path. You, you know, you can access the ball, middle of the back consistently, do it on a piece of string in a garage, do it on a piece of string with a tree, th- throw tennis balls against a wall. I'm seeing a lot of people now buying these little feeders where you can just, yeah. you know, you can almost feed yourself with a little tennis ball feeder. Uh, put a couple of cones out so you're practicing, you know, just hitting in straight lines. I mean, you can do all the shots, to be honest, but but for me, get the basic straight stuff, you know, front and back foot first, and then you can you can look at your sweeps and your pulls and some of the other stuff uh, stuff afterwards. Yeah, and then with regards to sort of preparation, uh, you touched on it before, is that just player by player, um, you know, when you're coaching them, or is it in terms of, you know, you like them to hit a certain amount of balls or you like them to prepare in a certain way, or is it just just the sort of the feeling that you get from that player? I, I, I think... I think a lot of it with players is they, you get a sense from them whether they, I mean, you know, think of someone like a Shiv that I was very fortunate to work with, Shiv Shandapur. Shiv Shandapur was a practicer. He wanted to hit a lot of balls. He would feel happiest when he's hitting a lot of balls. And he was a big machine man. He wanted to be on a bowling machine, big swing, 80 mile an hour in swing, away swing. All he wanted to do was line up the ball and just get his eyes tuned in and just playing late under his head, right? But he wanted to hit balls. Then you, you someone like a Chris Gale, you know, he might come out and hit 15 balls and that's him done. You know, 15 might be too many, might do 10. <laughs> so you you start to get to know. And as long as the guys are performing, if Chris is, is winning matches, Shiv's winning matches, let them carry on doing what they're doing. My job as a coach is if you see the player who's only hitting 10 balls and he's not getting any runs in the middle, he's not getting any confidence, he's not playing, you might suggest that 10 isn't quite enough at the moment. He might do a bit more work. So, and, and I think you have that conversation there. But if things are working, they're in a good space, they feel happy, they're winning your matches and they're playing well, let them go. And, and that would always be my gauge is how are they performing? And then you might have to step in if they're not, you know. Yeah, and then with regards to technical changes, is that something that you'd try and avoid in season and just leave to to the off season, or would sometimes you have to do something in season? Oh no, sometimes you'd have to do it in season. You might have to do it in the middle of a series. I mean, if somebody looks really out of sorts, I remember Craig Brathwaite when we toured England back in. 2017 and he was in a right pickle honestly and you could see him in practice he was getting hit on the thigh pad he couldn't get a clean bat on the ball anything that came back in was just he, he, he just couldn't get a bat on the ball he was getting hit on the pads hit on the thigh pad he just getting out every other ball in the net he just didn't look himself and it was pretty straightforward what his issue was his hands were going away from his body the toe of the bat was almost behind his back so whenever the ball came in his bat had to come around him and by the time it's coming around him at, at that pace when it nips you know, you're never catching up with the ball. So all we did, and we spent a lot of time on that tour, I showed him the footage to back up what I was saying, hands in tight, get the toe of the bat over first slip. And then any time now the ball's angling in, you can now suddenly access that ball, hit mid on, mid wicket. You're suddenly getting back on a ball that's been hitting you. Um, and by the end of the tour, I think he got 190 in the last test. I mean, the difference was phenomenal to where he started four or five weeks earlier in the tour. 
Uh, but it was just a technical, a little technical thing of his hands going away, toe back, toe behind him. But yeah, I, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't say, look, Craig, we've got to get the hands in and get the toe over first lift. Um, so that was, a, that was a technical intervention. And then with regards to facing spin and seam, uh, is there a different approach? I know obviously a few years ago, Duncan Fletcher spoke about uh, staying slightly lower to spinners. Um, is that something you adopt as well? Um, no, I mean, sometimes a little forward press. Um, I mean, I, my, my feeling with spin, I mean, watching Root, fantastic, you know, very quick on his feet, brilliant sweeper, judges length well to sweep. But I think the players who play spin well, like Root, like Michael Clark, are very, very light on their feet. So for me, the ability to be fast up and down the wicket. So even when, you know, working with young players, I do a lot of work on using their feet, come down, hit long on, hit long off, constantly getting them to use the feet quickly. The sweep clearly is, is, is a really worthwhile shot and it's knowing when to play it, what length, what line and get comfortable with it. But I think the ability to use your feet, because if your footwork is good, you, even your best spinners start to pull their length back a little bit because they're afraid you're going to get them on the half volley and then they start pitching short and then you pick them up off the back foot. And that's what that's where I think Root is so good. He ends up making them bowl that little bit shorter because he's so fast getting down the wicket. Yeah. And then with regards to when batting, uh, is there any skills and drills you can actually do to help switch off? Obviously, there's quite a big thing about not trying to be on the whole time you're out in to bat because obviously it just feeds you massively. Yeah, I, I, I don't know about necessarily about skill. I think it's just something to remind to your players and, you know, to make sure that, as you say, you can't concentrate the whole time that you're out there. I think in between overs, having your chat with, your, you, you know, the guy down the other end, uh, in between balls, just looking into, in, in, you know, almost looking into the um, into the boundary and looking into the the crowd, you know, sort of get away from uh, because it, it can become very intense and, and very focused and uh, you know and high high pressure environment. So you you do need to switch off, and then the minute he's back at his run up, you switch back on again, and you're you're back into your back into your job, you know, and into your zone. Yeah, and then just a uh, a few things to to sort of finish. Um, what Best bit of advice have you ever been given? And what would be sort of a single bit of advice you'd give a young player now? Um, what advice? I, I, think that the, I think the advice I would give is, um, I think it's a psychological piece of advice, really, is to, um, to always obviously work and train hard and practice hard. And, and I think try to review what you're doing, review what you're doing practice and review what you're doing matches. But I think, and it comes back to almost where I started this chat, really talking about my own career 30 years ago and how that could have been better. And I think I would have been better if I'd put less pressure on myself. So I think for players, it's finding the balance between being as professional as you can, doing all the right things but not putting huge pressures. Still enjoy it. Still, It is still a game. You must enjoy playing. Whatever level you play, you must enjoy it. And that's something really interesting with Root, you know. You watch Root playing, even in test matches. You see him smile a lot in the wicket. He yeah. gets in a little comment. He clearly loves batting, right? And I, I think you must enjoy playing. You've got to enjoy it, however much pressure. And I think if you do that, I think you maximise your potential. I think you get the best out of you. So that would be my thing. And then just to finish, um, a few quick fire questions. Um, probably best to do it around the people you've either coached or been coached against. Who's the quickest bowler that you've sort of ever coached or or came up against? I know the quickest bowler I faced by by far was Alan Donald at at, um, right. at Warwickshire at at, um, at Edgebaston. I mean, it was the one type, honestly. And I faced quite a few quick bowlers 
it was the one time I genuinely felt if he got the ball in a certain area, I didn't think I'd get out of the way. That's how quick he was bowling. I honestly, I thought if, if he gets in there, I think it's going to hit me. I don't think I'm going to get out of the way. And I don't remember feeling that at any time, honestly. I played pace, all right. But he was quick. I mean, he genuinely quick. If it would go past you. You'd have time to look around. And it hadn't landed in the keeper's gloves yet. It was still going up. And the keeper was 32 yards back. He's outside the white circle. I mean, yeah. it, it was a different game. It was a different game. I remember the heart pounding. You know, it's a real... Yeah. That was proper pace. Um, so I, I remember that quite clearly. <laughs> and then what about like the toughest bowler? So it might not necessarily be someone who was the quickest. Um, toughest bowlers. Uh, oh God, faced a lot of good bowlers. I mean, some of the, some of the best bowlers were, were our own young, you know, Middlesex bowlers. And I remember as a youngster going in a net at 16, facing Wayne Daniel, the quick West Indian <laughs> with a new ball. I remember Don Bennett, the coach, giving him a new ball. I'd only just come out of schoolboy cricket. I've got <laughs> Wayne Daniel's big chain swinging around his neck, steaming in at the Lords. And sometimes those nursery nets at Lords could be a bit up and down anyway. Just what I needed at 16. Tufnell was very good. Fantastic yeah. spinner. Very, very talented. H- had the ability, Tufnell, to bowl a ball where the seam would almost go around like Saturn. It would sort of spin around. And you- you'd think you could get there coming down. There. You could never get there. The ball would just dip on you. So, yeah, he was very, very talented. Good, clever bowler. Very clever bowler. So, yeah, sometimes, you know, some of the best. Are the We're in your own side almost. Yeah. Um, you know. And then your favourite ground in the world? Um, I was very fortunate on the tour of New Zealand with England under 19s, played in a place called Pukakura Park, which was all like a Chinese gardens and all banked. It was all steps and banks, grass banks, beautiful ground. Um, probably the nicest ground I've played at. Um, but been lucky, played at MCG, played at some of the big stadiums around the world. Uh, but in terms of sheer, you know, stunning beauty, I think that ground, I think even the Wormsley ground. In uh, yeah. in Buckinghamshire, you know the the private John Paul Getty ground, stunning as well, very yeah, beautiful ground. And then your favourite memory in cricket, if there's one, if not sort of top three. I I think I think honestly I think the I think the Rose Bowl win was great Middlesex because you know I, I'd been there a long time, I'd played for them a long time, I'd I'd run the academy, I'd run the second team, I was now running the first team, I, and just that day, as I said to you, we had to win a semi final and a final. I never saw a cloud all day, which, you, you know, doesn't happen in England very often. And to, win off, <laughs> and, to win off, and to win off the last ball, I mean, it was just, it was just amazing. And, and we'd, to be honest, the side had played so well. I think we played 14 matches in the competition before the finals day, and we'd only lost one or two. I mean, we'd virtually won every game we played. Yeah. We were the form team, and I, th- I think that team deserved to win. And I was so pleased they won because they played some really good cricket. It was a great day, and uh, mum and dad were there, and... Yeah, it was it was great, and and as I say, Harry Potter was there and did the uh, he did the team talk afterwards. That was great. That was great. We usually ask best or favourite coach, but um, try and spin that around. Who's the favourite player you've worked with in terms of their work ethic and everything else that goes along with it? I think Shiv. I think I, I think Shiv Shandapur for me. I, I felt I learned a lot from Shiv. Um, I was lucky I worked at him, worked with him at a time when he was number one in the world. He was, you know, he was scoring a lot of runs. But for me, it was a great, it was a collaboration. It was very much, I'm not going to go in and tell Shiv out of bat. Shiv was scoring runs all around the world, top player, but a lovely guy. And he wanted me to be honest and tell him what I saw. And we just built up this nice working relationship where I started to know what, you know, how he liked to work. Um, and we just, you know, it worked really well. And uh, it was great. And a true story with Shiv. This tells you a lot about his work ethic. Um, I remember a test match against Australia in Barbados, you know, a few years ago now. And he, he batted pretty much all day. He was 100 and something not out, 120 or not out, say, overnight. 
and it was virtually dark and he came up to the dressing room after you know soaking in sweat and been batting all day you know and he said so can we go on the bowling machine at the back so I looked at him, I said, what do you want to do? He said, mate, he said, I just want to work on something. He said, I know what they're going to do tomorrow. He said, they're going to go round the wicket and I think they're going to sort of angle it in and try and get the ball tailing away and get me to nick off by. And I just wonder if you could set it up so we could practice it. So he went out. It was virtually dark, right? It's dusk. And I've got the machine round the wicket, angling in, tailing away, 85 mile an hour. And we did about 40 minutes, right, until it was dark. And he was 100-something not out. And he batted four or five hours. Incredible. And went back in the next day. And to me, that was proper. That's why he was number one in the world. Professionalism, work ethic. And I I just loved that about Shiv. And, you know, and he's very good with the young players. He was very helpful to people around him. And I was, I I learned a lot. I was always asking him stuff. And um, I found I learned a lot working with him. So it was great, really. Yeah, no, it's really interesting that, you know, someone with that sort of work ethic, obviously right at the top of their game as well. Um, he, he still wanted more. There was, he, that was the point. He wanted more runs. He wasn't happy yeah. with his five hours, 120. I wanted 150, I want 200, you know, and that was yeah. just thirst for runs, you know, thirst for runs. And then your best mate in cricket? Well, my, one of my best mates, Simon Cook, um, who, who's coach, bowling coach down at Kent. Uh, and we've been very good mates for a number of years when he was playing at Middlesex and I was academy coach. And then he started to do a bit of coaching in the winters, which is he used to come in and do a bit of bowling coaching for me, really. And we became really good mates ever since. And, um, you know, he's married a Swedish girl. I used to go out and see them in Sweden. And now he's he, then he was Hong Kong national coach. And he's now um, and he's now, as I say, he's bowling coach down in Kent. But we, we're, we're very close mates. And he, he was a fine bowler cookie. He was a fine bowler. I don't think he played for England, but he was very close to playing in the one-day side. I mean, he was a, right. he was an excellent one-day bowler. Had a really good back-of-the-hand slower ball that picked up most of his wickets. And uh, he was a very good exponent of that. But great guy, great guy. And then the best player you've played with or against or come up against in, whilst you've been coaching? Oh, my gosh. That's a, that's a real tough one. Oh, I mean, we've I've been lucky, really, because we've played against most of the of the world's best. I mean, I suppose we've played against Coley. Um, brilliant. Uh, we played against the Australians, so Smith and uh, I mean, you know, there's so many really. It's difficult to know where to where to go. Yeah, um, probably Coley, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, he's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> no, probably Coley. And then for the listeners, where can they find you on sort of social media um, and anywhere else? Well, I'm on, yeah, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter. Um, so I, I, I tend to put some of the stuff I. I, I I created something last year during the first lockdown really called the batting booth. And the idea was that when I was working with the West Indies and we'd be in between series that players, um, obviously I couldn't coach them in the net. So they were sending me their batting footage and they'd send it on WhatsApp. So I get these little five minute clips of Holder or Chase or whoever. I'd make some comments or maybe draw a couple of diagrams on the footage and send it back. And in the lockdown, I thought, you know what? There may be something in this. People can't get to their nets. So maybe something I can offer to the public. So I added it to my coaching website, Toby Rudd for Cricket Coaching. And it's been great. I've had videos in over the last year from India, Australia, where people send me these clips now. And I just analyze them, give my comments, you know, um, and the areas that they can work on, some drills that could help them. And it's been great. It's really sort of taken off, to be honest. So, um, you know, started it in the first lockdown. It's, it's still going. <laughs> which, which is 
there's no sort of sign up in terms of you don't have to send you 10 videos. You can literally just send you a one-off video and, and go from there. No, and what what I've done is I've done it sort of a, a, a different price list, really, where, you know, you can pay £25 and you get a certain number of clips and pay 50 and you get a bit more. And if you pay a bit more, you get conversations like this and you'd have a regular chat and a Zoom call and whatever. So I've done it for different levels. But, I, I you know, honestly, I've had club players, school players. I've had internationals. I've been doing a lot with Jermaine Blackwood, who's had a really good year yeah. with the West Indies. Um, you know, so I've got a few internationals on there and, and I've got a few a club players from Australia this week, send some stuff over. I, I really have a mix, honestly, but it's great. And I love it because it's, it's what I do. And I, you know, I'm passionate, as you probably know, about looking at batters. So um, it, it's been great, really. And it, 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 it's, it's, it's kind of taken off, which is, um, you know, I didn't really expect, but it's, it's been good. No, it's really, really good to hear. Thank you very much for, for coming along there and taking time out of your day. No, pleasure. Good to chat with you. Good luck to all the guys. And hopefully you get playing this year and uh, you have a good summer yeah. over there. The sun shines after we're everything we've been through. We're sort of hoping for a, a shorter, sharper lockdown. We'll be back in time for the cricket season. But yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah, well, good luck to you all anyway. Thanks very much. Good to chat to you. Thanks, Toby. Thanks very much. Thanks, Ben. Thank you for listening to the Guernsey Cricket Podcast. Remember to hit the subscribe button and keep listening. No one's gonna shoot me down alone.